This morning we're going to be looking at a passage of God's Word that is, can be kind of frightening, certainly confusing for some people. It's in Romans chapter 9, and I, I was tw- almost 21 when I was converted, and I can remember the first time I read Romans. And I got to Romans chapter 8 and 9 and 10, and I wanted to go in the kitchen and get one of those kitchen mitts, you know, those big things you put in, because it's like, whoa, God is being very godlike and sovereign, and these, there's a lot of power emanating from these passages, and I wanted to turn the pages so my fingers wouldn't get burned, because God was God, and he didn't care what I thought about him. So in Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 18, there's just a few verses we're going to read, but one of the things Paul talks about here to the Christians in Rome is the question of God's hardening and God's mercy. What does it mean when the Bible says God hardens sinners? And what does it mean when it says God has mercy on sinners? Pick up the narrative with me, Romans 9, 15 through 18. We should back up to verse 14. A question is asked, what shall we say then? In answer to a question, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It's the strongest negative you can say in the Greek. God forbid, may it never be. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Have have you ever puzzled over that passage? Have you wondered what that meant? Have you had a vision of a guy walking down the street and suddenly God infuses a meanness ray into the sky? And he was a nice person. He paid his taxes, treated his family well. But God infused this meanness ray in this poor guy and he just became a really hard son of a gun and nobody wanted to be around. Is that what it means when the Bible says God hardens a person? Well, we're going to look at that this morning, and then we're going to look at also the question of God's mercy. How does God's mercy and God's hardening go together? So we're going to look at several things. First of all, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of God hardening a sinner's heart. There's 50 times in the Bible the the word hardening is used, talking about sinners, either God hardening them or them hardening themselves. Second of all, how is hardening related to our natural human condition? In other words, Apart from the subject of hardening, what does the Bible say about human nature? What has sin done to the human race? How has sin left us? Third, how does God actually harden a sinner? What are the mechanics of what God does when he hardens a sinner? Like I said, does he have a stash of, okay, here's the meanness gene up here, or here's the meanness ray, and I'm going to zap these people. Is that what it means? We're going to look at that. Fourth, how do sinners harden themselves? And finally, what is the cure? So let's pray, not because we haven't prayed. We've had a good worship time already this morning, hearing God's word and singing his praises. But I'm not that good a preacher, and you're not that good a listener. So we need to pray that God the Holy Spirit would minister to all of us. So let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
maker of all things, judge of all men. We are in your presence even right now. You know the thoughts and intents of each of our hearts. From the youngest child here who's barely aware of what's going on in the service, to older children, to teenagers, to parents, to grandparents, you know what's going on in each of our lives. I pray that you would grant the Holy Spirit to each one of us that he might help us to understand God's word and having understood it, we might believe it and having understood and believed it, we would entrust ourselves to it and we would obey it. Would you do this for Jesus' sake alone, we pray. Amen. In the Old Testament, the book of Exodus is the key place where the subject of hardening comes into the scriptures and where many of the instances are used. I'm not going to have you read all the passages, but I'm going to read a couple for you. You can check me out and listen to the tape later, or um, you can believe I'm telling you the truth when I read these verses. But God chooses Pharaoh as an example, example A, exhibit A, so to speak, in a court trial. Here's my main evidence of how God hardened sinners, what I did to Pharaoh. Listen to Exodus chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It says right there, God is going to harden his heart. He's not going to let the people go. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, it says, You shall speak of all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he lets the sons of Israel go out of, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Now that's two of just several instances where God says explicitly, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Seven other times he says that. I will. So there's a total of nine instances in just the book of Exodus where God has said to harden a sinner's heart. Uh, can we agree that Pharaoh is not your ordinary, everyday garden variety sinner? He's El Primo. He's the probably the greatest person in his lifetime on the planet, he was the supreme commander of the most powerful nation at that time. And God says, I hardened his heart. But then if you, if you, as you read the book of Exodus, it also says several times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What's going on here? In Exodus chapter 7, verse 4, God tells this. He says, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, that's an example of hardening, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's going to not listen to you. And as we see, that's interpreted for us a chapter later in chapter 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord God had said. So yes, he hardened his own heart, but the scriptures also say that God hardened his heart. So which is it? Or in some ways, is it both? Well, I think, you know, that puzzled me. And, you know, sometimes you can be lazy. You know, you've probably heard of lazy people. Maybe you've actually ever seen one in a mirror. A uh, person who doesn't always do everything they could, but kind of like, have you ever been reading your Bible? You're going to be faithful to read your Bible devotionally, and you come across a hard verse. What does this mean? Eh, I'll just keep reading until something jumps off the page and makes my heart flutter. Well, that's not really a good way to do Bible reading. But one time God provoked me, you know, I need to study this. I need to study this now, particularly when you're a pastor and you're supposed to explain God's word to God's people. They need to know what it means. You need to know what your God is like. 
Is he a God who makes people meaner than they would have been already? That Pharaoh was a nice guy. He was teaching Sunday school. He helped old ladies across the street. Then God infused him with meanness and he became a hard person. I hope you don't think that about God. The Bible doesn't reveal that about God, but we can misunderstand what the scriptures teach. Let's look at what the Bible says about human nature. Apart from the subject of hardening, when our first parents fell into sin, and the Bible says that all of their progeny, all of their descendants inherited sin from Adam, and we added our own sin to what we got from Adam. I started with a bad start, and I added to it. Well, we can't understand hardening if we don't understand our natural heart condition. Listen to what God says in Genesis right after the fall, chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. This is the reason why God's about to judge the planet with the great flood. Look at what sin has done to the human race. He said that the wickedness of man was great. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, I need to make a distinction here, and sometimes people get confused. Theologians speak of what's called total depravity or sometimes called thorough depravity. And there's another phrase, absolute depravity. You go, so what's the difference? Okay, when the theologians teach total depravity, they will use this verse, meaning all the parts of a human being, his mind, his emotions, his will, have all been affected by the fall. There's not one part of our being that's immune from the impact of sin. That's thorough. The different parts of our being have been impacted. That's thorough or total depravity. Absolute depravity means everything that everybody does all the time is as evil as it could be. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that any of us are as bad as we could be. There is this restraining grace that God has upon the planet and that God hasn't given over each one of us to be as bad as we might be. The Bible does not teach absolute depravity, but it does teach that sin has left each person in such a condition they don't want to seek God, they can't seek God, the thoughts of their heart, the desires, the ambitions, the aspirations of their lives are not to please God. In Genesis chapter 8, the intent of every man's heart is evil from his youth. Whoa. So the youngest child in here is an acorn sinner. Some of us grow up to be oak tree sinners, but we're all sinners. And the seeds of who you will be as a sinner are in you from the very time that you're a small child. I'm not saying every small child is as, is as wicked or bad as he could be. But in thinking about my own conversion at the age of 21, I can extrapolate from my life even to small children. As a child, Johnny, and I hope you're not, your name's not Johnny, but if you are Johnny, you can come and see me after the service and punch me out. But anyway, Johnny, would you like to hear about the greatness of God? Or would you like to play with your Legos? How many of you believe the kids will opt for the first one? How many of you believe the kids will opt for playing with their Legos? Their natural aversion, I could care less. God, I mean, i got to play with my Legos. Come on, i got important things to do. Some God or whatever that word means is unimportant to me. You know, I wasn't like some of the famous atheists. There were atheists who were famous in the 60s when I was growing up, there's atheists who are famous today. They shake their fist at the God who doesn't exist. And it's like, way too much energy. I mean, it's like, really? Is this 99 on the tension scale? You shake your fist at a God who doesn't even exist? 
Well, it leads me to believe there must be a God because you're so ticked off at him. Well, I wasn't that kind of unbeliever. I could care less. I mean, I had my life to live. I had stuff to do. You know, you wake up in the morning, what do I want to do today? What am I going to do today? What was, what's going to rock my world? What do I want to achieve today? And, you know, I wasn't the worst person in the world in terms of how I treated other people, but in terms of how I treated God, I was abominable. I could care less. There's an almighty God who created everything, who created everything on the planet. You exist only because he decided to make you. You maintain your life moment by moment because he chooses to sustain you moment by moment. And you say, it's unworthy of my attention. I have more important things to think about. It just shows you what sin has done. It made me not care, but it also blinds me to things. There's a, a word that it's called the noetic effect of sin from the Greek word for noe, for, for knowing knowledge. Sin fogs, sin confuses, sin obfuscates, sin's a smoke bomb in your brain. And, and no, I don't quite get it. And so sinners have two and two and it's five. Two and two is 87. But when it comes to understanding spiritual things, sinners never quite get the four. The things of the Spirit of God are foolishness, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. They're foolishness to the natural man. If you are sitting here and you're not a Christian, then spiritual things, apart from God's supernaturally ministering to you right this moment, apart from that, spiritual things are stupid to you. You always tell your kids, don't say stupid. Okay, the Bible says foolish. What does that mean? You're stupid. Well, that's the way we talk, isn't it? Sin leaves us foolish. Sin leaves us blind to the beauties and the awesomeness of God. I was excited to see that you're going through the Holiness of God videos in Sunday school class. And can I say as a friendly thing, if you're not been going to those, shame on you. You've really missed a blessing. You've really missed one of the most important things in your life. Because everything, everything depends on the kind of being whom God is. Is he holy? Is he just? Is he merciful? Is he kind? Is he wise? What is God like? Because what he's like determines everything. Is he Adolf Hitler with sovereignty? Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Is he just some senile old grandpa sitting in a rocking chair at the, at the nursing home? I don't care about anything. I just want to sit here in the haze. What is God like? The Holiness of God videos will show you what God is like and will show you who you are in response to him. Anyway, we've been going through how sin has left us, and it's not a pretty picture. In Psalm 14, which was read for you, we read that it says, they are all corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Abominable is worse than bad. It means to God, it's abhorrent. It means he turns his face away. You stink. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You go, that's not true. There's Mother Teresa, and then 40 years ago there was a guy who was ministering in the Belgian Congo who was a famous person who they said, well, he's down here doing good things, learning to play the organ in the jungle and doing doctor work. He's a great, good man. Well, on a horizontal level, I'm sure they treated people nicely. But the Bible doesn't, first of all, base your life upon how you treat other people. It bases what it thinks of you on how you treat God. You can be as nice as you want to be to other people, 
But if you abominate God, then what you do in the, in the horizontal level is just ashes. In Psalm 36, by the way, David would repeat the same thing in Psalm 53, what I just read to you from Psalm 14. In Psalm 36, I think it gets at this problem of what's going on in our hearts. 36, 1 to 3. An oracle, an or, the word oracle means a burden, something that weighs heavy on me. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. What drives them? What makes them tick? There is no fear of God before his eyes. I could care less. God, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He flatters himself too much to detect his sin, and he flatters himself too much to hate what he, whatever he might see. And that's how sinners get by. They get by in their life. I was cruising through life without looking for God and without reference to God and doing my own thing. And God was merciful and not snuffing me out in his holiness. Does the New Testament treat things the same way as the New Testament so pessimistic? R.C. Sproul on the videos talked about how some people want to contrast the mean, harsh God of the Old Testament with the kind and loving Jesus of the New Testament and wants to play them off against each other as if they're two different gods. That's not true. He points out that the, the harshest thing ever happened on the planet was God judging the only innocent person ever to walk the planet, his son, and that happens in the New Testament. And Christ is made to become sin. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin. That's the most gross thing that's ever happened on the planet. All the sins of all the people Christ came to represent were on him. He was the consummate sinner. So yes, the New Testament does deal with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Listen to Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who are concerned. Uh, you didn't wash your dishes right before the meal and you might be defiled and you didn't wash your cups right before the meal. And Jesus says, it's not what, he says, what, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, not from what comes from the outside in. For from within, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And that's just the first 15 minutes of the evening news. All of these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. You know, people say, I don't want my kids being around those kids because they're going to pollute them. Well, bad news, your kids are already polluted by their own sinful hearts. Now, where you choose to school your kids may be another manner, matter, but don't think that your kids are squeaky clean Snow Whites. They're not. All of our kids are sinners. Are they acorn sinners? The question is, will God intervene and keep them from becoming oak tree sinners? Turn to Romans chapter 3, and Josh referred to it, but the Apostle Paul strings together a bunch of verses from the Old Testament. He says, you Roman Christians, you want to know how bad the human nature is? Let me tell you what the Old Testament has already said. Verse 10 through 18. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You go, That's not true, because I met a person one time, and they said they were seeking God. Really? Did you present Jesus Christ to them? Yeah, what did they say? Well, that's not the God they were looking for. So they're not seeking after the one true God. They're seeking after a God of their own making. 
If a person's really seeking after God, God will bring him to Christ. If he's seeking after a God of his own making, I met a guy once on the beach in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he said he had met God once while he was on a mescaline trip, and it was the Portuguese man of war that had floated in, and God spoke to him through the Portuguese man of war, which is a kind of a large jellyfish. Really? You got some bad mescaline. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know, this is a good way to get punched out, but the sweetest little brand new baby in the nursery is as much of a sinner as the rest of us. They just haven't had a chance to act it out yet. None do good in God's sight, absolutely. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Then he kind of gives a bottom line, like they say in business. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They could care less. I mean, who is God? Do you know how great I am? Who is God? That's what Paul says. We're just stringing together verses from the Old Testament. But then you just had read in your presence Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, okay, you Ephesians, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, it gives the context. It tells about the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus and the people coming to Christ. And many of them were into the occult and they brought out their tarot cards and their, all their wicked things and they piled it up and Luke estimates it was about, what was it, 50,000 days wages of stuff that they had that they were into the occult. And they burned it all as part of their repentance. As Paul writes to the Ephesians later, he says, do you remember where you came from spiritually? What were you like before God arrested you? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. The word trespass means to go across a boundary. If you have a sign on your property that says no trespassing, it means people aren't to come on your property. They just can't come cruising through your property. We trespass, we go against the laws of God, we break his laws, we go across boundaries. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world. When the Bible talks about a walk, it doesn't mean going for a stroll. It means that you're purposefully walking somewhere. You, you and I purposefully lived our lives, it says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Though the spirit being now working in the sons of disobedience, all formerly walked in the lust of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, just who they are by being born, children of wrath. And then in verse, uh, 20, verse 12, he summarizes, he says, at that time you were without hope, without God, and in the world. That was an apt description of where I was. That's an apt description of where you were in your B.C. days. So to sum up, the Bible says, Old Testament and New Testament, that sin has so defiled every person that we're born spiritually dead. We may have a physical body and a mind. I can apprehend the world of ideas through my mind. I can apprehend the world around me through my five senses in my physical body. But spiritual things, I'm dead to. We're born spiritually dead. We're impervious to God. We hate God. We're allergic to God. We have no natural desire to please him, no natural desire to glorify him or give thanks to him. 
We have no desire to live our lives by his laws. We don't want to listen to his counsel. We're blinded by the devil, and we see ultimately nothing desirable about God. That's where sin has left us. Now, the sad part is that mankind is naturally religious, and so that's why you have a multiplicity of religions. I'll invent my own religion. Yeah, this is what I like to think about God. Have you ever talked to someone, tried to witness to them, and said, well, that's not the God that I know, or that's not the God that I like to think about. Well, the question is not what kind of God do you like to think about, but what God really exists. That's reality, not what I think. I like to think the IRS doesn't exist every April 15th. Well, good luck with that. How does this condition of our hearts and lives as sinners relate to the idea of hardening? The light's a little better on this side, so I'm going to shift over. The key to unlock the mystery that we've been looking at is the Bible's teaching about the potter and the clay, okay? Here's human nature. Here's what you have to work with. And here you have the clay, and God says, I'm the potter, and you're the clay. You're not the potter. God's not the clay. God says, I'm the potter. I'm the maker. I'm the shaper. You're the clay. The Bible says that God has a right to do with his creation whatever he wants to. The potter fashions the clay in the shape he desires. But the question that we're looking at right now is, how does God harden the clay? How does a potter harden clay? Well, thankfully, growing up, if you look back at some of your childhood experiences, you can understand some things about the Bible. My sister used to do things with clay, and then she wouldn't do anything with it for several months, and she put it in a shoebox up in her closet. And then you pull the shoebox down and plug, hey, what are these rocks doing in my shoebox? They're not clay anymore. They've turned to rocks. They've hardened. Who hardened my clay? Nobody hardened your clay. That's just what happens to clay when it's exposed to air. Clay in its natural condition will get hard automatically. In fact, how do you soften clay? You have to work it. If you don't work it, it's going to just get hard. What does God have to do to a sinner with all the problems I've already described to make that person spiritually hard, impervious, insensitive? He doesn't have to do anything. And the scary thing for some of you who may still be outside of Christ is, I know remember one time I was speaking at a church and there was this kid I knew was priding himself on being so rebellious and that God wasn't going to have any piece of him. And I stole his joy by saying, you know what? I hate to break the news to you, but you're not doing anything. God just gave you over to yourself. It's your natural way to be rebellious. The fact that you're rebellious right now, it doesn't mean you're doing anything. It means God just let you alone. That's the scariest place in the world to be. God says, I want my spirit shall not always strive with man. If God leaves you alone, you're in a world of hurt. If God leaves you alone for the rest of your earthly life, you will spend eternity in perdition. If you want to make a piece of clay really hard, not only just you leave it alone, but if you're actually working with physical clay, and you may want to harden it, you put it in a kiln, you apply heat over time, heat and air, and it becomes like a rock. Well, sometimes circumstances, sometimes hard circumstances, can make a sinner a really hard sinner. Have you ever met somebody who was bitter? 
I deserve to be treated better than that. I hate God. Sometimes you may even pray for people. I pray that something bad would happen to this person so they'd come to their senses and come to Christ. Newsflash, circumstances do not change people. The Bible nowhere reveals that circumstances by themselves changes anybody. If the Spirit of God is not supernaturally working in a person, the circumstance will only harden them and make them bitter. People in hell do not repent. Wouldn't you think if there was ever a set of circumstances that might, people wake, might make people wake up and change their lives and change their tune, it'd be in hell? But the Bible does not record that people in hell repent. They just remain hard. They just remain uncaring and hating God forever, experiencing only his wrath and justice and holiness, but not his goodness and mercy and kindness. Hard circumstances doesn't change anybody's heart. Hard circumstances can make a heart hard. In Romans chapter 1, if you'll turn there for a moment, there's a progression that I think is important to, to follow. Romans 1, look at verse 18. Excuse me, let me back up. Look at verse um, 24. Therefore, God gave them up, or God gave them over. Whoa, what's this about? Well, in the previous verses, they didn't want anything to do with God, so he just gave them over to themselves. Now it says here, he gave them over. God gave them up to the lust of their flesh, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. He gave them up once, and they go into depravity. That's the 60s. And then he gave them up again. This time, it's not to normal fornication or adultery. It's homosexual perversity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful actions with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So God gave them over to another level of depravity, another level of sinking into sin. But that's not the end of the chapter. He's describing the Roman culture. He's describing the world that these people are living in. He says in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, or they didn't want to have God in their knowledge, you know, we have God on our money. We have to swear in courts. So help me God on a Bible, etc. They didn't want to have any thought about God because thinking about God, if you're heavy into sin, thinking about God cramps your style. It makes you nervous. So it'd be better if we just got God out of everything. And since they did not seek to fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a, debased, to a debased mind. King James said a reprobate mind. What does that mean? A graceless mind, a mind that grace has given up on these people. They're doing things that if they were ever in their right mind, they wouldn't do them in a million years, but now they do them all the time. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then as he lists the things that are happening there, I was thinking, you know, I can see the downward progression from immorality to homosexuality. homosexuality. You'd expect, whoa, how much lower can they sink? 
but then it isn't a, a sexual orientation of their sins. What he describes in the following verse, he says, they're filled with this and they're filled with that. Their culture was just filled with sin in general. Sin became the norm. Righteousness was very distant. Righteousness was an unknown thing. Common grace had disappeared. You don't hold the door for a lady. You don't help a lady up. You don't stand up for elderly people when, when they come into the room. You don't give up your seat for somebody. You don't, none of the common things of common grace were part of their lives. And in fact, things were just getting worse and worse and worse. It describes how bad they were. It says in verse 32, though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's our culture today. You folks are tolerant. You let anything go on in your church. You can live like hell and go to heaven in your church. That's a great place to be. And if we had our, if the culture had its way, that's what every church would be like. And the idea that you hold to biblical standards makes you intolerant. But that's another story. So, this is the condition of the human race. I haven't really spelled out how does God specifically harden a sinner. I did say that with clay, you don't have to do anything to the clay. You don't have to infuse anything to the clay. You don't get a vial of of hardness and pour it on the clay, and the clay, which had previously been soft, now becomes hard. You didn't have to do anything to the clay. Well, I came across a passage in Isaiah 63 one day that helped me to see the Bible explains its own conundrums. And in chapter 63 of Isaiah, he's asking God to be gracious to the nation. And I won't read the whole passage for the sake of time. Look at Isaiah 63:17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? So in a sense, it's kind of blaming God. You made us wander. We would be in a better place, but you made us wander. And harden our heart so that we fear you not. Well, see, he's saying right there, you hardened our heart and we've wandered from your ways. What's going on here? But look what the solution is. The solution shows you what hardening is. If he's complaining that they've been hardened, He says, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance. God working a piece of clay shows that he cares about it. God sitting the piece of clay down and stepping back and putting his hands in his pockets and saying, fine, you want to sin? I give you over to your sin. That's God hardening a sinner. He doesn't infuse anything into a sinner. He stops working with sinners. He stops giving his grace. His spirit shall not always strive with men. And so a person a family, a culture can begin to go down the drain because God stopped working with them. Again, the solution to God's hardening them is to God to return and draw close to them. God, work in our hearts again. Don't give us up. Look, read the prayers of some of the saints in the Bible. Habakkuk chapter 1. God, look how our nation's going in the tank. Look how terrible Israel's become. God, you have to do something. The solution is God working in the people's lives. So here in Isaiah 63, the question of how does God harden people? He just leaves them alone. How did he harden Pharaoh's heart? He, he had God's spokesman tell Pharaoh what God's going to do, and then he didn't give Pharaoh any grace, and Pharaoh said, I don't want to do that. I'm the Pharaoh. I'm the king. You're not going to leave my land. 
So his hardening was simply giving Pharaoh over to himself. If any of you are sitting here and you're priding yourself on being rebellious, or you have any relatives or friends who pride themselves on being rebellious, remind them you're not doing anything. God's just given you over. God has just given you over. That's the scariest place to be. If God's convicting you of your sin and working in your life, that's a sweet place to be. God doesn't bother certain people. He leaves them alone. They relish their rebellion. They savor it. They think they're doing so great until the day they die and wake up in hell. It's God's mercy that he ever works in any sinner's heart. In fact, Romans, back to Romans chapter 9 again, what was that passage we read? It looks a little different now that we put some context to what the Bible teaches about human nature. And Let's go back and read Romans 9 again, verses 15 through 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For, because the scripture says to Pharaoh, now this is why Pharaoh is important. If God can do this with a king, the mightiest man on the planet, what's he going to do with Joe Blow? What's he going to do with common, ordinary, garden variety person like you and me? We're no great shakes for him to deal with. Here's the greatest person on the planet, and if God doesn't give him mercy, he's as hard as a rock. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you, and that my name, and that, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I'm passing you by. I'm not giving you any grace. I'm giving you over to the natural hardness of your heart. I'm giving you over to your pride. I'm giving you over to your stubbornness. I'm giving you over to your selfishness. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The Protestant reformer saw that Christianity is a religion of grace, not of works. Not of works entirely, not of works partially. It's a religion of grace. God didn't have to save you. He didn't have to work in your life. He didn't owe you anything except justice. And he forsook his justice to give you mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will, and I will harden whom I will. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, a very encouraging verse. For the God who said, let there be light. Now you go, uh, I, I know that. Where is that verse? That verse is in... Genesis 1, yes. For the God who said, let there be light, made the light of his gospel shine in our hearts that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same supernatural power that it took to create the universe, God says, is the same supernatural power it takes to take a dead sinner and turn them into a live Christian. Mercy is supernatural. Mercy is as great as the power exerted at creation. It's the grace of God. As R.C. Sproul said in the videos, I caught the end of it, you never pray for justice. God help me. I demand to be treated as I deserve. Really? Do you want to think about that again? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke chapter 16 or 18, that's what the publican stands on this. He's standing there in the front court front steps of the temple, beating his chest, going, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisees going, I thank you, I'm not like other men. 
that I do this and I do that and I do this. And it says he was praying to himself. That's right, because he wasn't praying to God. God did not regard his prayers with any approval. One man was self-righteous. Look what I've done. If you want to believe the Bible teaches a religion of merit, you're sadly deluded and you'll wake up on judgment day to find out your good works are so many filthy rags before a thrice holy God. But if you understand that God is a God who chooses to have mercy. God told Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? You know, here in Dallas-Fort Worth, there's too much ambient light from all the signs and lights and stuff like that. But you go to West Texas, you go out in the desert, and there's a billion stars. He says, Abraham, can you count those? No. Can you count the sands here in the desert? No. So shall your descendants be. That same promise is picked up again in the book of Revelation. Like the sands of the seashore, like the, scars the, like the stars in the sky. God's not chintzy with his mercy. He's not cheap. He's not miserly. You know, I can remember thinking, even as a new Calvinist, well, if I was in charge, I probably would have be saving more people than God would. Do you, you hear what I just said? I'm more big-hearted than God. I'm more merciful than God. He made me to feel the stupidity and foolishness and sinful pride of that statement. If, if only God was more like me. God forbid, you're glad he's not like me. You're glad he's like who he is. But the question is, have you received mercy? Has God been merciful to you? He lets you hear this message today. If you were here for Sunday school, you got to hear a tremendous message by R.C. Sproul. That's mercy. You know there's a judgment. You know there's a Savior. If you blow that off, it's on your own head. But you know there's a Savior. You know that God's a God of mercy, and he loves to save sinners. We think, because everything's by merit, well, the person who gets their act together, who cleans up their life, who makes themselves more presentable, God would like to save a person like that, but not the slovenly, slimy, dirty, filthy, ratty, sin-infested sinner. Yuck. The Bible says that God loves to save sinners. There's a hymn, I'm not sure if it's in this hymn book, but there's a hymn, and it's Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. And one of the lines says, Intercessor, friend of sinners, earth's redeemer, plead for me. It's a, it's, it's a prayer asking for, it's a hymn asking for prayer. But Jesus' title is a friend of sinners. I qualify. I am a sinner saved by sheer grace and nothing else. And if you're saved here today, it's by God's grace alone that you're saved. There's nothing meritorious in anything you've done. And if you tried to clean up your act like we sang, come ye sinners poor and wretched, if you wait till you've cleaned up your act, you'll never come because you'll never get cleaned up. But Christ saves you in your sins. Time's up. Is Christ your Savior? Are you amazed at his mercy? Have you ever laid in bed at night thinking about your salvation and pinched yourself to say, I can't believe he would save me. This isn't a fairy tale. He really did exert his grace to me. Because the gospel isn't a fairy tale. It's the gospel. And it's greater than all the fairy tales put together. God saves sinners gives them the righteousness of his son, gives them his Holy Spirit to keep them until the day of, of we go to glory, gives us a Bible, gives us a church, gives us a day, a week, and he says, you are mine. You are my beloved possession. In Zephaniah 3.17, and 
I understand why you don't know what Zephaniah 3.17 is, because the pages of Zephaniah are still stuck together in the back of your Bible. But um, what does Zephaniah 3.17 say? It says, the Lord looks down upon them, and it says, and it's a matter, you can, for those of you who are fathers or mothers, you can appreciate this. For those of you who are not currently fathers or mothers, you can imagine this. It says, he's, he loves us with an everlasting love, and he sings over us. Did you ever sing over your kids and, and sing st- songs to them and make up songs, make up tunes? My kids used to say, Dad, you, you did that tune last night. It's the only tune I know. So did you ever sing to your kids and call them names, names of affection? Um, God says, I love you. I sing over you with affection. You are mine. You are mine. Let's pray. Our Father... Again, if this were not in your word, the Bible, if it was not in the very word of God, we would think it a fairy tale, fit only to tell little kids to put them to sleep at night or someone who's afraid of the dark. But thankfully, it is the gospel. Sigmund Freud said that religion was invented by puny little scared people who came up with a God to protect them from nature. But why in the world would we invent a God who's scarier than nature? who's scarier than the storms, who can still the storm with a word and the clouds disappear and the waves stop and it's sunny and it's perfect and it's really scary. Lord R.C. Sproul brought that out in his series, The Holiness of God. We don't invent a God who's scarier than the things he's to be protecting us from, but we did not invent you. That's the God who you are. You spoke the world into creation. You sustain it moment by moment. And you can have mercy on who you want to have mercy And you can harden, you can bypass whoever you want to harden and bypass. Lord, don't let anybody in this room go to bed tonight without having done business with you if they're outside of Christ. Lord, help them to to feel their guilt, their condemnation, the justice that's due them. And apart from grace, they are undone. Would you help them to trust in the revealed gospel of Jesus Christ that God sent his son to bear the sins and its curse that they deserve? that they might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, give them grace to believe these things, to apply these things, to trust these things. Oh, Lord, where would we be without you? Great God of mercy, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.